0: And so now, without further ado, Sam Graham Felsen, who you're all here to see tonight, uh, was born and raised in Boston. He's worked as chief blogger for Barack Obama's 2008 campaign, a journalist for The Nation, and a peanut vendor at Fenway Park. And this is his first novel is Green, which we're all here to talk about, uh, which Helen McDonald said... It's a fierce and brilliant book, comic, poignant, perfectly observed, and blazing with all the urgent fears and longings of adolescence, a glorious story about the subtle complexities of loyalty and friendship that courses with deeper themes of societal expectations. I'm not done. Social injustice and the nature of belonging. By the time I reached the closing chapter, I was so invested in the fate of its characters that I could hardly bear for it to end. It absolutely knocked me out. Here he is. Hi, everybody. <clears throat> Thanks for coming out. Um, it's it's exciting to be in L.A., um, first of all, because I got to leave New York where it's freezing. Um, my first event was actually supposed to be in Boston. It was snowed out because of the bomb cyclone. Um, so it's nice to be in a place where, um, you know, it, it's not a, a horrible ordeal for people to have to come to one of my book events. Um, also, um, I actually you know, I didn't know I wanted to be a writer when I was a kid. Um, I was something of a knucklehead who just read the sports section. Um, But I I started fantasizing about fiction when I was working on the Obama campaign in 2008. And I actually wanted to be a screenwriter. And um, my fantasy was to, to with some of the materials from my own experience in sixth grade and write a screenplay I, I I thought it would be easy and then I started I was like this is really damn hard and I gave up pretty quickly on that dream uh, but I stuck to I stuck to fiction ended up doing it in a prose form and uh, this is it um, the first thing I'm going to read is uh, sort of heavy it, it actually has an la theme to it um, and it is well i won't i won't say too much more about it um what i'll do to all right i have to do a tiny bit of setup uh so th- so this is a book about a a white kid at a mostly black and latino middle school uh he gets made fun of the first few days of school and then he begs his mom to buy him a uh, a cool outfit uh at at a a sort of urban streetwear kind of store in the mall. Uh, he gets a giant denim, purple and teal, kind of Horn- Charlotte Hornets colored uh, denim outfit. Um, and he wears it, and things are going great. And he's finally getting like compliments in school, and girls are paying attention to him. And then he goes to a uh, basketball court on Friday uh, with uh his other friend who's not really his friend he kind of hates him uh there's i guess frenemies is the word for it uh they're friends cuz their their parents are friends and forced them to play when they were kids but but uh that's kevin um okay so they're they're playing basketball kevin kevin and simon another jerk go off to get some snacks and dave is pl- continues to play with um, a, a black kid uh, who's been playing pickup basketball with them for the last hour or so. Uh, and they're really enjoying themselves. I asked the dude if he's ra- from around here, and he said he's just visiting, a co- says he's just visiting a cousin. So I asked where he's visiting from, and he says, down south. Beyond that, we don't get real deep, but things are easy between us. We're cool with each other, and maybe it's just because my shots have been falling. But I get the sense that he doesn't give a what about the fact that I'm white. We're talking about the new Ice Cube track and last week's In Living Color, just shooting the shit, shooting around as the sun sets and sprays gold across the court. Kev and Simon are taking forever and I'm hoping they don't come back. It's been almost two hours and I'm spent, but I don't want to stop playing. We're still going when it starts getting dark. Then I take a shot and it clangs off the rim. And the kid doesn't even bother to rebound it. He just lets it bounce off to the other side of the court and glares at me with his green eyes. He takes a look behind his back, walks over to the fence, grabs my jacket, slowly slides his arms through, and walks back toward me. His face is like a mask. A second ago, those same lips were laughing at my jokes, Those same eyes were opening and closing and following the arc of an orange ball across a gray sky. Now everything's flat. Still. Hard. Dope jacket, right? I say, pretending I sense nothing. It's a real dope jacket, he says. I'm gonna take it with me. I laugh softly trying to crack the mask. Run your pants too, dude says. I stand there for a few seconds trying to think of something to say when I hear Kev and Simon approaching. They walk back to the court holding a pizza box, but keep their distance like they sense something's up. Tell your boy to run his pants, the kid says to Kev and Simon. Kev chews his slice slowly. Simon's jaw just hangs there. I turn to Kev. I can't figure this out alone. Do we fight him? I mean, there's three of us. But Kev's eyes are locked on the concrete. So I try the whitest move in the book. You're playing, right? I say to the dude, fighting to maintain my smile. I mean, I thought, I try to make eye contact. I thought we were boys. Run your fucking pants, he says, reaching into his backpack. Now! Damn it, Kev. Come on, Simon. The food co-op's right around the corner. I've hit out from Jackers there in the past. Just give me the sign and we'll book it. I just want to make sure we're on the same motherfucking page. I'm going to count to 10, he says. Then you're going to find out what's in my bag. We're a half block away from a world of health food whities, but it's a dark and empty half block. The court's penned in by four stories of brick. Yelling help is not an option. 10. 9. Eight. Kev, I say, and he finally looks at me. The second I meet his eyes, the shame rings me like a sponge, bitch water trickling, trembling. I mouth the words, should I? Four. Three. Don't make me take it out. Kev turns to Simon, and Simon turns away. Kev gives me a little nod. As I'm undoing my belt, I notice a pile of dog shit. It's the orange kind, looks fresh. Two flies are fighting over it. One dive bombs the other and for a second the shit is his. Then another returns and dive bombs him back. As I watch the flies, a thought occurs to me. What if I dive bombed that dog shit myself? What if I sat down right on that nasty pile and rolled in it? Would he still want the pants? Without the pants, would he still want the matching jacket? Smearing myself might make him more likely to shoot me, but maybe he'd leave me alone. Fuck you looking at, white boy, he says. You think I'm playing? Leave him on the ground and walk the fuck away. Y'all too, he says to Kevin Simon. You best not turn around. Simon and Kev start walking off the court. I unzip my pants and slide them down my legs. The openings to the bottom are so wide, I don't even have to take my shoes off. I shake my way out of the purple leg, then out of the teal, and walk away slowly, hunched and cupping my crotch. Once I'm sure the kid's gone, I run toward Kev and Simon. They're way ahead, speed walking, rounding the corner to Center Street, not even waiting for me. Hold up, I say, but they keep walking like they don't even know me. He's gone, I whisper. Kev finally slows down, then Simon does too. They're both still looking straight ahead. I want to scream at them, I didn't get jacked, we got jacked, Kev's the one who nodded. But I'm standing here in my Hanes and fila's, glowing white under the streetlights, and I just want to get home before my parents do. If they find out, they'll call the police, make me file a report. Even though the kid's just visiting, he'll tell his cousin, and all his cousin's boys will be on the lookout for a snitching little white boy. Keep this on the low, I say. Simon pulls his hoodie over his head, but Kev nods. I peel onto a side street and walk home, the parkway, taking cover in the long-limbed shadows. Benno is his little brother. Benno hears me breathing hard in the middle of the night, climbs down from the top bunk and returns with tissues from the bathroom. I whisper thanks and he climbs back up. Even if I could talk to him about what went down on the courts, I wouldn't want to. It's not because I'm afraid he'd squeal to my parents. It's because I'm afraid if I started telling him about the jacking, I'd end up telling him the darker truth. Something way more terrifying. Something I hope he doesn't know about yet. The Force. This isn't some Jedi bullshit. The Force I'm talking about is real and its energies are everywhere, working on everyone. I don't even blame that kid for what he did to me. I blame the Force for what it did to him. In my elementary school, I barely felt the force. Got called white boy occasionally, but always in jest. Never got called white bitch. The Trotter was the most diverse school in the city, even though by the time I graduated there were only a couple dozen white kids left, and it was proud of that rub. Our motto was together in friendship, and our logo was a stick figure drawing of a white kid and a black kid holding hands. Me and most of the other white kids were in the famous school choir. We performed We Wish You a Merry Christmas slash Hanukkah slash Kwanzaa in fancy law firm lobbies and did the national anthem at Fenway. When Nelson Mandela got freed and came to Boston on his world tour, our chorus was chosen to put on a private show for him. We did this little light of mine and thank you Mrs. Rosa Parks and everyone got to shake his hand. Anytime anyone comes to our house, my parents bust out the picture. That was the force-free world I lived in till a few months ago. My parents talk about how they'll always remember where they were when they heard Martin Luther King got shot. I'll always remember where I was on April 29, 1992, the day the LA riots started. It was a Wednesday and I was at Kev's. Simon was there too and we were glued to cable news all afternoon. Coming up at the trotter, singing those those civil rights songs in my together and friendship tea, I thought it was all progress from here on out. A steady march to harmony. Then that Wednesday happened. The cops who stomped Rodney King on a video everyone saw over and over, the guiltiest four dudes who ever lived got off. I couldn't believe it, and when I watched those rioters smashing up strip malls, I understood. I even rooted for them. What I didn't understand What they did to Reginald Denny, that white trucker with long blonde hair who happened to be at the wrong intersection at the wrong time. How they pulled him out of his cab and whooped him to near death on live TV. The way he wobbled on all fours trying to get back up. How every time he raised his head, another guy would come back and knock it down, one with a bottle, another with a brick. But what I really won't forget was the way that after each blow, Those dudes did victory dances for the helicopter cameras. Simon and Kev cheered them along, went, oh, the same way they did watching WWF. But I stayed quiet, ashamed that I was secretly rooting for this white guy with long, head-banging hair to get out alive, sickened at myself because I found those victory dances sickening. That's when I started seeing the force in others and when I felt the force in myself, too. I didn't just hate those dances, I hated those dancers, and I couldn't help in the heat of that hating moment, but hate them even more for being black. I couldn't believe I was feeling this. Me, the same kid who sang for Mandela, but I was. The verdict, the victory dances, the O's, the secret seething hate inside me. It was the force come full circle, the first time I felt its cyclonic strength. All summer, I tried to deny the force, but I felt it every time I got checked on my way past the projects on my way home. And for a while, I walked past the PJs anyway because it didn't happen every time. And I wasn't gonna let the force play me like that, but eventually I started taking the park route and I never stopped. And I felt ashamed of that and felt ashamed that I was so scared about going to the King in the fall. And yeah, I've been feeling pretty ashamed that the force has been with me nonstop since I got to the King. And now, just as I was hitting a semi-stride, just as I was getting propped instead of clown, just as the force was fading, I got jacked. And jacked like this, on my favorite basketball court, by somebody who seemed to feel me, by somebody I stupidly dreamed for an hour or so, was my boy. All right, now I'm gonna read a a happier thing to, (laughs) let me just say how much time I have, okay. Um, so we're fast forwarding to, uh, a sleepover party at Kevin's house. Um, that Saturday, Kev has his annual sleepover birthday jam. So this book is about a friendship between Dave and one of his classmates named Marlon. And this is that Marlon is one of his classmates. That's all you need to know. That Saturday, Kev has his annual sleepover birthday jam. The usual crew shows up, Simon plus the other white boys we went to the trotter with. The second I arrive, Simon whimpers, I thought, I thought we were boys. And the other dudes start rolling. I try to explain how Simon and Kev just stood there like the world's biggest bitch twins, but nobody listens. The only reason I'm here at all is because Marlon was invited too. A couple hours later, he still hasn't shown up, and Kev kicks off the Freddy Krueger marathon without him. There's no way I'm sticking around for this. The truth is I'm shook of sleepovers. That might have been normal when I was seven, but I kept getting shook, I kept being shook of them at eight, and I've gotten even shooker since. I'm not exactly sure how the fear began, but most of the sleepovers I've ever been at have been at Kev's, and it doesn't help that Kev's always watching horror movies. It's not just the movies though it's like scariness itself that scares me like once i start getting into ship mode everything spooks the way kev's porch light shoots through the blinds and slices up the wall the swirls on the carpet the blinking red colon on the clock radio but what's scariest of all is the hugeness of kev's house how long it takes to walk to the bathroom the horrible feeling that i'm the only awake person not just there but on the whole planet I don't like my house, but I feel safe there. With its shitty snacks and worn couches, it feels too whack to attract evil. Still, ever since the machine thing, I can barely even sleep there. Right after I got jacked, I spent a couple of days sleeping on the floor next to my parents' bed. Eventually my parents booted me and I started sleeping in the hallway outside their door, but I decided that was too sapient even for me, and I went back to my own bed. Now I have a trick where I tune, tune into Celtics talk radio and twist the volume to the lowest point before it clicks off. Lonely losers from all over New England complain about the Celtics preseason and how bad they're going to be without Bird, and I can't even hear half of what they're saying. As I try to make out the whispery, whined words, Rebound! Effort! Disgrace! I fade away. I'm getting ready to jab my fingers down my throat and make myself yak, then I can call Ma and she'll come pick me up in the whale, Kev's name for our white Plymouth Voyager with all the dinged scratches and shredded bumper stickers on it, and I'll go home, as I've done so many other times, in total humiliating relief. But then Kev's mom knocks on the door. Kevin, she calls, your friend is here. It's Marlon. He didn't know the deal to knock on the back window instead of ringing the bell. Oh, snap, what up, Marlin? Kev says, giving him extra showy dap in front of the white boys. You gonna introduce me, Kev's mom says. This is my mom's, Kev mutters. I'm Anne, she says, extending a hand. It's nice to meet you. Listen, Marlon, I don't want to be nosy, but does your mother know you're up so late? Kev's face flares up. People like to clown me about my parents, but Kev's mom is just as corny. She's got long, frizzy red hair, and she's rocking the wackest mom gear ever. Maroon clogs, loose jeans, long sweater, purple pashmina, and silver earrings that look like wind chimes. She, um, Marlon starts, Ma, Kev says, can you bounce already? <laughs> okay, boys, have fun, and try to get a tiny bit of sleep. Yo, this is Simon, Kev says to Marlon, refusing to introduce the other white boys. We were just about to rock a Freddy marathon, start with Nightmare and Elm, and go all the way through the latest joint. Marlon's eyes are on the candy bowls in the kitchenette. You ready to watch some bitches get laced up? Kev says. Marlon heads for the candy, and I follow him. Kev puts on his Freddy glove and beckons us with a claw on his middle finger. Marlon ignores him, downing a bag of Skittles. You ready to fuck with Freddy, Kev says in the raspy voice. My chest pounds like microwave popcorn. Y'all could start watching without me, Marlon says. I- I've seen him too many times already. That shit's kind of played. Kev walks into the TV room, deflated, and turns back to me. Dave, you coming or what? I'll be there in a sec, I say. Damn. You're fucking soft, Kev says, slamming the door. <laughs> Want to play Nintendo? I ask Marlon. There's another TV in the guest room. Kev's mom is one of those parents who buys her kid every tape available, even the ones they don't ask for, so there's about a hundred to choose from. Marlin picks out Final Fantasy, and I spend a half hour watching Marlon's dwarf wander around, picking up hatchets and rations, bonking orcs, before he asks if I want to turn. I'm not about to tell him I don't know how to play Final Fantasy, that I've never played Final Fantasy, because Kev only likes the fast-paced fighting games and never lets me pick. A lot of people can't stand Final Fantasy for the same reason Kevin can. It's too slow and wordy and numbery. There's too much roaming and too little murder. But this is exactly what I want to be doing right now, with the screams of Freddy's victims piercing the walls, watching someone else scuttle through forests and peek into huts, listening to the same 16-bit tune on repeat. You guys coming or what? Kev shouts. Marlon pauses the game. You wanna? He asks. Maybe Marlon just wants to be selfish and play video games all night at someone else's birthday. But it seems like he senses how badly I don't want to watch Freddy. Maybe he's secretly shook too. Either way, without even waiting for my reply, he yells, we're cool! What? Yells Kev. We're cool! Marlon yells even louder. Kev turns the volume up to fuck with us. A couple hours later I can tell that they've fallen asleep because the sounds stop and no one bothers to put in a new tape. I'm still watching Marlon play when Kev's mom knocks on our door. It's after three, guys. It's time you got some sleep. Marlon didn't bring his sleeping bag, so I take the couch and let him take the bed. Kev's mom turns the light off and closes the door. Night green, Marlon says. Nightmar, I say. That's when my Pops calls me, Mars says. Oh, I say. It's cool, he says. About 10 minutes pass and I can tell he's still awake from the way the springs are squeaking. You still up? I whisper. Yeah, he says. I can't sleep, I say. There's a long pause. And I'm scared I went way over the softness line. <laughs> me either, he says. I bet if we turn the volume off, we could keep playing Nintendo, I say. <laughs> Mar lets me pick the game this time, and I go with Bike. But I still prefer to watch, not play. It's the most repetitive and relaxing game of all time. There's no bad guys or anything. All you do is ride up ramps, do flip jumps, and land. It's like watching leaves fall off trees, and in minutes, I'm out. If anyone has questions, I'm happy to answer them. All right, first audience, all right, Ehrlich. your voice versus, your experience versus what you from other or in school? Um, one of my writing teachers told me that whenever someone asks you the question, is your book autobiographical? Say yes. Every single one of these thoughts came from my brain. Um, but uh, I mean, this this is more autobiographical than thing I've ever done fictionally. Um, but, uh, but, you know, for example, the character of Marlon is probably drawn from 20 different friends. And the fun thing about fiction is that you can take the most interesting aspects of your friends and put them all into one character. Like, for example, I would not be a good fictional character. Like, I would just be too boring in fiction. But Dave is, I think, more interesting than me because he's both a worse person than me and a little bit of a better person than me he's like more courageous than i would be in certain circumstances and way more cowardly and venal than i would be in other circumstances so what i what i like to do is is take just take the the strong colors on the palette that i notice um in in my relationships with different people and 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 play with those um and create characters out of that so um but yeah uh that's that's what I would say, and you know certain certain things are are literal memories. I have I, I see at least one person here who was in my class at the King, and uh, I did in fact have a uh, purple and teal denim suit. <laughs> I was not mugged for it, but I did have I did have that. Um, I was mugged at one point for something else, but you know then I said, wouldn't it be funnier or more interesting if I. Uh, if I had this kid get mugged for a purple suit. So anyway, that's, that's, that's the way I do it. Basically, my litmus test is, um, is, is, can I make something more interesting than my actual life? <laughs> you know, um, by using the materials for my life, yeah. And I think even if you're writing a story about like a Martian, the Martian is actually your uncle. You know, no one just makes up a Martian out of nothing. Yeah. What's it like um, having this book come out um, in the Trump era when sure you were really talking about race relations and um, a different kind of minority-majority situation? Yeah, uh, I I definitely did not write this thinking Trump was going to win. I started working on this at least in my mind when I was working for Obama, and um, in fact, I started working on it because. I was frustrated when I was working on the Obama campaign how little we could talk about race and how little the country was talking, sort of openly about race. It was kind of like still a subject that felt like it was under under the surface. I said, "Why don't more people write about this? Yeah. Now it's um, yeah. I was I was devastated just on a personal level having worked for Obama to see Trump win, but I was devastated just as an American as a human to see Trump win too. And um, and I think I think. Um, it's it's one of these like unfortunate circumstances where my book actually probably is now more relevant um, uh, than it would have been. Um, when I worked at the Nation, I, I started there when when Bush was reelected, and uh, our joke there was, "What's bad for the nation is good for the nation," and uh, you know. Um, but but I think you know th- this is a, this is a book I, I read. You guys stuff from the beginning of the book, mostly because I don't want to spoil stuff that happens later for those who haven't read it. But this is this is a book that's a coming-of-age novel, but I think it's also kind of a coming-of-awareness novel. It's about a kid who starts out just complaining about how rough his life is because he's white in a mostly non-white setting and gets made fun of for that. But it, it ends up you know, evolving into a book about a kid starting to wake up to... Um, his white privilege and um, you know the the ways in which he's treated so differently from his classmates, particularly Marlon and I think um, you know it's 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 kind of because it 's through the white kid's perspective um, you know we see Marlon experience all of these microaggressions and we see Dave basically experience micro non aggressions I mean so much of what happens to Dave is an absence of what happens to marlon and and so that so the book is the book is really about um you know i think I think a kid waking up to um what it means to be white in this country and i you know i hope uh i mean i don 't hope trump reads it because he doesn 't read um but uh but but i hope i hope um you know i hope people read it and think about it and talk about it because I think, you know, most most American literature that has white characters in it, which is most American literature, never discusses race at all, never discusses whiteness. Whiteness is just the oxygen that is breathed in the book and it's just N- not present at all, this book is very much about um, whiteness, and I think you know um, it's it 's uncomfortable to think about, but um, it 's something we have to think about you know too much of the burden um, i think in the in the racial conversation this country is put on you know people of color and not enough is put on white people to think about what their whiteness means. so I hope this book sparks those kind of conversations. I have sort of a two-part question. The first is, have you gotten very different reactions to your book, like wide variety of reactions? And then if you have, if you've noticed any sort of consistency, whether like young people feel very differently than older people, people from like the suburbs versus the city, whether it's Boston or not, I'm just kind of curious about that. Yeah, the most positive reactions I've been getting are from people who came of age in the 90s because even if they didn't grow up in Boston or or even if they didn't grow up in a city, you know, they, you know everyone had a kid in their school who wore that kind of purple suit um, or knew the store in the mall that, you know, I based this on uh, and, um, and, you know, enjoyed the kind of references in the 90s. Uh, slang, but but um, some of the negative feedback I've seen on the times where I've made the mistake on going to Goodreads.com and reading the reviews <laughs> have been from people who are like, "What the hell is this kid talking about?" I had to go to Urban Dictionary 50 times per page <laughs> to understand any word, and you know I, I understand that 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 it's, it, it is a difficult book for that reason. I mean, Huckleberry Finn is a difficult book. I remember when I first started reading it, I was like, what the hell is this? It's impossible to understand and, and quit. Then I went back later and just pressed through I mean, similar thing with, with The Wire. I mean, most of us who've seen it probably struggled for the first episode and then, and then figured it out, what they were talking about. You know, figured out that, you know, WMD meant heroin pretty quickly, right? And so I hope that, you know, I hope that people who stick with the book can understand the language. But that's been the big barrier, I think, for, for a lot of people, just impatience with the language. And, you know, I, I wrote it this way for a very deliberate reason, um... You know, I, I, I don't still talk ex- like Dave talks in my ordinary everyday conversations, but I did talk this way as a kid. Most of my friends talk this way. And I think it's a beautiful kind of language. I think like hip hop is the music I grew up with. I think, I think like most of the new words in the dictionary in the American dictionary are coming from hip hop. I mean, woke is a word that came from hip hop, right? That's going to be, if it's not already in the dictionary, it will be in the dictionary. So some people call it slang. I just call this English. This is the American, this is the American language and it's just as valid as any other kind of language. So I think, yeah. Um, Have you gotten any reaction from uh, kids around the age of the characters? Think about that when I mean, you're writing a book about you know, what are six middle school kids reading this book and the take up. There's a there's a there's a kid around the age of the narrative who's reading it right now. Um, thumbs up or thumbs down? <laughs> Good, thank you. Um, you know, I uh, I've heard from some adults that have that have given the book to their kids. I haven't heard from that many uh, kids yet. Um, you know, I I. Um, I did write the book primarily for adults because so much of what's happening in this book, um, with apologies to Will over here, so much of what's happening in this book is happening on, on an ironic level where the reader is supposed to see a lot of things that Dave doesn't see. And when Dave behaves in immature or short-sighted ways, um, uh, a sophisticated adult reader should see you know, that... That I'm doing that deliberately as a writer to to show the ways in which Dave is not fully you know to use the the word I just used a second ago to show the ways in which Dave is not fully woke you know and it's important it was important to me to 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 have that kind of ironic distance and there's a lot of there's just a lot of subtle humor that I think requires some level of um, of adult knowledge but having said that i mean there's there's still plenty of stuff that I think kids can get a lot out of it. you know I read Huck Finn probably way too young I mean I think I read when Did when were we supposed to read Huck Finn like ninth grade or something I mean you know I I reread that book while I was writing this book I reread it you know I mean that I reread it a few times while I was writing this book just to see how Mark Twain did did his thing so brilliantly and like you know for example like there's a, a scene on the very first page where Huck is at the old widow's house and um He's he he Huck was homeless and now he's like at this rich lady's house who's giving him proper meals. Huck is used to like literally dumpster diving and just eating food out of a barrel, and uh, he goes. Uh, he's now in this in this quote-unquote civilized house. He's been adopted, and uh, the woman feeds him you know a proper meal where she separates the meat from the vegetables, you know, in neat little portions on the plate. And Huck is like you know. I just like it better when the food is all mashed around, right? Like, that's how I like to do my thing. You know, I hate it when you, like, separate the food. And that resonated with me because when I was a kid, I was one of those kids that, like, really got mad if, like you know, the the mashed potatoes leaked into the, you know, beef stew or whatever. You know, actually, that's a bad example. That's that's a good mix. But, you know, I would get mad if, like, one dish leaked into the other thing. And, in fact, at one point, my parents even bought me, like, one of those plates that separated the different foods for you. But, so anyway, like, I, I, re- I just, that resonated with me on just, like, the literal level of, yeah, like, as a kid, that kind of thing really annoyed me. But as an adult reading it, I realized that, like, Mark Twain was, t- you know, Huck complaining about the way that society segments stuff when really he just, he likes it better when it's all mixed up. I mean, that was, that was a profound statement about Huck's kind of transcendent you know, um, you know vision for an America that is not segregated, <laughs> you know. Um, that is not something I got as a kid, but that's definitely something that's in the text and you can see as an adult. So, yeah. Um, do we have time for... Yeah, okay, sure. I have small children. I read this on a red light to work and I to put it down after that thinking. Rodney King was still alive. It feels so innocent. So I'm going to ask you the time has question. Are you hopeful? <laughs> uh, yeah, spoiler alert. Like, this is not a terribly hopeful book. Um, it's a, uh, you know, it's a book about a friendship that cannot survive the weight that society places on it. and um, But... There's a tiny, 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 tiny glimmer of possible possible, possible hope um, and uh you know uh, what I would say is just that the the only thing that gives me hope is that things are so terrible right now that that we are now forced to have conversations that we were uh just procrastinating having for a long time, you know uh. You know, we're forced to have the the Me Too conversation that was so long overdue. You know, we're forced to have the conversation about you know white supremacy and white privilege that we just were not having. I mean, especially during during the Bush years, where terrorism and you know national security completely eclipsed uh, any conversation about race for the most part in the media. Um, you know, we just now the now the issues of uh, you know the patriarchy and white supremacy are at the forefront of our national conversation and I guess what just makes me optimistic is if we're having those conversations, not everybody uh is 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 getting uh woke but but more people are <laughs> and um you know and and uh you know I, I just think talking talking is is our only way out of this uh you know talking talking. About the super uncomfortable stuff that we don't want to talk about is our only way to to get out of this, and um, and I see that happening now. So that makes me mildly optimistic. But you know, I think I think Tanasi Coates like has a good analogy where he says, you know. Climate change, right? We're getting, we're getting like uh, pretty aware of how much uh, you know cars and, uh, and 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 you know methane from cows messes up the environment, right? But we're still like, it's still like inconceivable for us to think about banning cars and like not eating beef anymore, you know, as a society. So, you know, we're still, even though we know that climate change is real, I mean everyone in this room I assume knows that, Um, and and we want to do something about it and and we're woke on that topic, we're still really far from making real progress on that. So I kind of think that climate change and the racial situation are kind of analogous in that way. So it's going to be a long long haul. Yeah, this is my friend from the King School, Maya, hi. experience is being at the King, you know, I was probably the most sheltered and segregated experience that I ever felt because we were in this school with so many other students, but we were just shuttled in this very sheltered environment. In one one class, yeah, the quote-unquote advanced work and class, allowed right? we allowed to go to other parts of the school. Yeah, and we weren't even allowed to go to the bathroom on, on the floor above us, um, because they were worried, you know, what might happen if we went to the wrong bathroom. Yeah. But it, and, um, and then we just moved on. And the kids who were there didn't. And, you know, I I reflected upon that a lot, and I'm really excited to read your take on it. Yeah, I mean, one of the, um, one of our classmates was murdered, you know, um, I don't know what happened to I mean some some of the kids from our class are on facebook and um, and it's you know it's nice to to be in touch with them and they know the books out but but some I have no idea I've tried to track them down, I have no idea where they are you know some of the kids that were the inspiration for certain characters in this book so that that does really trouble and sadden me but Because <laughs> here I was, you know, doing so well, and I thought, but this is it. But they just see me as this transient person who was there. And yeah. In retrospect, I feel so embarrassed, you know, right. about like taking advantage of that situation. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I feel you. There's there's some embarrassing things that Dave does in this book, but uh, I take solace in the fact that in sixth grade, you know, if you're not a complete moron, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> if you're that morally precocious you're going to turn into like some monster like Jared Kushner someday. So. Um. <laughs> did I, I see another hand? Or? Yeah, Julie, yeah. Okay, so, I mean, I, I knew from when this ended, that I'm asking this kind of my question, but if they were going to be a sequel to this and it's like Dave goes to high school and the context of what's happening in, in the middle school what would that people be? All right, well, I'll answer that. I'm resistant to answering the question, like, what, what will happen with the rest of their lives because I like the idea of people having to imagine it for themselves, you know? Um, and, you know, like, like, Great Expectations, which is one of my favorite books, Another Coming-of-Age Story, ends on this totally ambiguous note of like whether um, Pip and Estella are going to end up spending the rest of their lives together, or whether they'll never see each other again. That's kind of how this book ends, and I, I like the fact that Dickens kind of, you know, if you're optimistic, you know, if, if you're Ta-Nehisi Coates, they're definitely never going to be friends again, and if you're Obama, they'll they'll be friends again, I guess. But um, but I would say in in uh, well, you know, I can't answer it because yeah, okay you were going to write a sequel based on your experience in the next Okay, year. okay. I'll I'll yeah. So I'll, I I not address what happens to Dave and Marlin because I I don't want to give spoilers. But so so after after uh middle school, I went to uh, Boston Latin School where Julia and, and and Maya and some some other people here went. And uh that that and Sarah and and that was that was the the you know um you know the it's the oldest school in America. It was founded in 1635. And um, it's basically like, you know, almost like a private school except it's free. Um, And, you know, it sends 25 kids a year to Harvard. And, um, And it's also just like you know m- way 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 way, way whiter than any other public school in Boston, and most of the white kids who went to Boston Latin didn't go to public school before that went to private school and um or parochial school uh and um and so I guess the sequel for Dave would be just adjusting to being in a in a mostly white environment for the first time in his life, and um just the 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 new Sort of strange struggle to um, adapt to being around other white people, and uh, and what that brings up in him. And I, I can say, just on a personal level, um, it was it was weird for me because um, it was it was hard to relate to kids who had gone to uh, private schools. Um, you know, uh, it's not anymore. I, I you know went to college, and most of the kids in college had had gone to. Uh, Either private schools or or highly segregated public schools in suburbs or whatever, but um, but at first it was an adjustment, and, and that's why like you know mo- most of us who went to the King just ended up sticking with other friends who went to the King, basically. Um, you know, we had our own clique of people who had gone through that experience, so that's what that's what it w- I think it would be like in a sequel. Awesome. Um, obviously, the subject. Of- Um, I'm just curious, you said, I read the book, and also there was a part where you said sapien, and I knew what you were referring to because I read the book. I'm just curious about, there was, I also grew up in Boston in the 90s, and my group of friends was speaking in some of the same language, and it was super, you know, it was so common to say, oh, that's gay, man. Yeah. I saw it, that's gay. And I'm just curious about, like, the way you wrote it and how it was looking back on some of the harder edges of, of that language, like the treatment of women and sexual Yeah, and, and yeah I mean, they absorb utterly homophobic, utterly misogynistic, and utterly racist ideas. You know, like, even, for example, the word soft, sorry, um, the word soft is basically a synonym for gay, woman, and white all at once, right and and hard is a synonym for you know black uh, straight, and man you know there are these like ridiculous dichotomies that um, that you know unfortunately were totally pervasive um, and um, and I you know what I hope this book is about is like the way in which those those dichotomies are constantly challenged you know by the reality of you know and and you know Dave and Marlon are both tremendously soft <laughs> you know and 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 once they're willing to accept that um uh in each other and and in themselves they're they're a lot happier um and and once they s- they are able to i mean but, but look the tragic side of it is that they're only able to do that in the privacy of of their own home um you know in school and on the street they have to you know put on the mask and act hard and pretend you know uh that they don't have emotions, and so I think in some ways this book is is just as much about um, you know gender um, and sexuality as it is about race and just the way that we set up these ridiculous binaries. And you know, look, I think it's I think it's way harder to be a girl than it is to be a boy, but I think it is really hard to be a boy. Julie and I actually had this conversation when we were kids. I think why it's hard to be a boy is because you're not allowed to feel emotions. You're not you're allowed to feel them, but you're not allowed to admit that you felt them. That sucks to walk around pretending that like you're never sad. Alternatively to walk around pretending you're never happy. Like I remember like if something good happened to you and you and you expressed happiness, people are like, what are you gay? You just said yay? What are you gay for saying yay? You know. So that that that's bad <laughs> you know uh and i hope you know i hope this book i this is this is a way in which i hope this book does get read by young people and you know especially at this age in middle school when when boys start calling things gay or whatever um just to just to challenge you know those 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 dichotomies and 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 show boys that like it's, it's actually okay to, um, to like things, and it's actually okay to be sad, and crying is not, you know, um, you know, a death sentence or whatever, you know. All right, are we good here? All right, I'm going to go cry in the corner. Thanks everybody.